0: I invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 15 begins the longest teaching on the resurrection of the dead in the Bible. Without the resurrection, the good news is not the good news. As we look to the reading of God's word, if you'd please join me in prayer. Our Father, Majesty, unbounded, worthy of all worship, You, Christ, are the King of glory, the eternal Son of the Father, and you, Holy Spirit, advocate and guide, we praise you and declare your great worth, our triune God. And from your word today, we ask that you would reveal to us your truth for our lives, that your truth would conquer our anxious hearts. And this we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe the word of the Lord. If you please be seated. We live in a time when the basic facts of history are easily questioned with slick social media presentations, internet videos, blogs, and the like. Just as an example, there are those who would deny the Holocaust that it took place even in World War II or radically minimize the scope. My grandfather served in World War II. Some of you, it was your father's. We know people who actually went into those concentration camps. There are tens of thousands of photos. There are videos from countries around the world who witnessed the aftermath. Some 300,000 survived the concentration camps themselves with estimates of 50,000 alive today in the U.S. still. And yet, particularly from probably younger people, They will be skeptical of of this because of a 12-minute video on YouTube. And this goes for just about everything. Pick your conspiracy, whatever it is, and there are millions of followers. But know that these are ideologies and not history. What's changed? In the past, when someone said something nutty, people just dismissed it. Oh, that's Crazy George. He's always saying stuff like that. Now, Crazy George can post all this on the internet. And people will start to listen. And suddenly it gains traction. And then reasonable people end up saying, like, Wow, there are 20,000 people who think this is true. Maybe there's something more to it than I thought. Well, even if that number is a million, think about that in the context of the population of the whole world. A million people is one hundredth of one percent of the population. It's nothing. But why am I even pointing this out? In chapter 15, Paul begins by summarizing the gospel. He ties it to specific historical events. And while there have always been counterclaims to the gospel, we are in a time when so much sheer nonsense can be put out there. And when people start looking at the numbers of views of these strange ideas, it can make them seem even more plausible. Paul lays out very clearly a summary of the ministry of Jesus, and we need to hear it again with fresh ears. It's because Jesus died for our sins and was raised again, we have a sure and certain hope believing in him. Chapter 15 is considered the, the pinnacle chapter of the whole book everything that paul has laid out leads to the hope of the resurrection from the dead we can get so caught up at times i think with the sheer idea of saving souls that we forget the lord came to save people body and soul the content of the gospel is very clear about this and it was and continues to be a challenge for every age every generation well looking then at the content of the gospel paul begins he goes i would remind you brothers of the gospel That word, every time you hear that, probably a good idea to just insert the words good news, because that's what it means. I think sometimes our English word gospel can actually obscure the meaning because it no longer carries that definition. Gospel means good news. The Greek word for good news comes into the English with our word evangelize. It's it's a direct word, means the good message, telling the good message. Because it's good news. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, I preach to you. I told you the good news. Which you received in which you stand. And by which you are being saved. And then he adds, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. The content. When he's saying the word, he's saying the content I preach to you. Unless you believed in vain. They had received the message from Paul. And part of receiving is holding firm to the end, not deviating from the course. Assurance of salvation includes persevering to the end. Genuine faith has God-given power to go the distance. And Paul tells us four things about this content. The things that Jesus did. He died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. He says in verse 3, For I delivered you as of first importance, What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ is the subject of all the verbs here, just about all of them in these few verses. It's all about what he has done. It's Jesus' life story that gives meaning to ours. I appreciate what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said of this. He said, it's not that God's help and presence must still be proved in our life, rather God's presence and help have been demonstrated for us in the life of Jesus Christ. We're not the center, it's him. And and Jesus did not just die, he died for our sins. Different times and places have different struggles with parts of the message of, of Jesus, to be sure. Now, the Greeks had a really hard time with the idea of a bodily resurrection. That was their stumbling point. And honestly, that one really doesn't bother our generation at all. We're used to hearing that. Yeah, I can believe that. They didn't have any problem, though, with Jesus dying for sins. They're like, well, yeah, we understand sacrifice. But that is one many struggle with today. Sin implies judgment. And the idea of judgment rubs people today the wrong way. I appreciate what Richard Niebuhr said said about this a generation ago, talking about sort of this uh, modern idea of which we live in, of people thinking about the cross and thinking about Jesus. He said, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. That, That summarizes a lot of the wishful thinking of our time. When we say that Jesus is our Savior. It means that He saves us from something, from sin, death, and judgment. All of this according to the Scriptures. Paul is, is using the term Scripture generally. The Old Testament gives the interpretive framework to understand Jesus' death and His resurrection. You don't understand Jesus without the content of the Old Covenant. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared to the two disciples. And for there in Luke 24, we're told, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They point to him. To say that Jesus died, it, it cuts against any idea that he only appeared to die. Or that he was really just a spiritual being who did not have a body. No, Jesus was fully God, fully man. In every way. And Paul goes on, because he died, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. Again, Greek ideas at the time were that the body was really not important. Spiritual, not material, that had value. And this Christian message seemed philosophically unsophisticated to many, it was an embarrassment. There was a temptation then for some to make everything about Jesus metaphorical. So as to sound more in line with the thinking of their day. But that's a temptation for every generation. There's always a temptation to make the story, the history of Jesus more palatable to whatever current trend finds it distasteful. And Paul goes on. He said he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, the 500, and then to James. And he says that even some of those have fallen asleep of the 500, but most of them are still alive. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul is writing his letter about 20 years after the resurrection. Most of the eyewitnesses are alive and well. All of these events were part of a verifiable historical record. See, the question remains. How do you explain why a bunch of strict Jewish monotheists suddenly start talking about this man from Nazareth as being the capital S Son of God? How do you explain why Paul, this radical Pharisee who went to great lengths to to stomp out what he thought was new heresy, persecuting the church, he suddenly does not about-face. How do you explain that? It will not do to say that Jesus rose in the hearts of his disciples. That they had an experience of the resurrected Christ. Over 500 people do not have a group hallucination. Nor is a metaphor worth dying for. Nobody dies for a metaphor. They met the once dead Jesus. Now alive and well all of their religious categories were blown out of the water. Suddenly, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 made sense. The great promises of the Lord for Israel, the promises of this new creation were now understood, centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when when Paul says that he was untimely born, that word there is miscarriage or stillborn. And it was used figuratively, To speak of a monster or a freakish person. And then Paul goes on saying that about himself. To say, for I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. This freak, as it were, became an amazing trophy of God's grace. He was not trying to pay God back to earn a get-into-heaven ticket. Rather, God's grace was working thoroughly through him. The unlikely apostle, the Hebrew of Hebrews, is cleaning it up in the Gentile world. No one would have predicted that. It's what Paul said at the beginning of this letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 1 he said, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him." This unimpressive Jewish guy does not have Greek oratory polish. He comes in and turns entire towns upside down with a message that is foolishness to their belief system. How does this happen? Because the good news about Jesus is true. You see, For those living then and there, they could have gone and rubbed their hand down the cross and gotten splinters in it. They could have traveled to Jerusalem to see the empty tomb. There may have been explanations of why it was empty, but they could have gone and said, yeah, this is where it was. They could have met eyewitnesses who had been healed by Jesus. Eyewitnesses who actually saw him die and then saw him after he was raised from the dead. The content of the good news is true. It's a history that at this time was verifiable. And that changes everything. And of course, the challenges that they faced, we still face. There's always challenges of this content. The gospel brings with it these struggles. We are living in the time between the times after the resurrection of Jesus, before his second coming. There are no eyewitnesses for us to check. Our inbox can be filled with links of counterclaims and rebuttals to these events. There are even now a whole host of things where they they call it deconversions. You can type that word in, you'll get tons of them. They're deconversion stories from ex-Christians who want you and I to dismiss the claims of Christianity, to debunk the content of the good news. Some of them are funny. Some of them are engaging. Some are are hip and cool and, and very contemporary. Many, not all, many simply do not want to live under the sexual ethics of the Bible. If I can debunk Jesus, then I don't have to listen to the Bible and I can do whatever I want. To be sure, some have no problem with Jesus as long as they can strip him from history. From the rest of scriptures. Then Jesus can be fashioned and in shaped into whatever image they want him to be. But Paul doesn't let us do that. Some of the Corinthians were trying to do that. Take away the bodily resurrection stuff. And take away all that Jewish fulfillment stuff. And then let us have this Jesus. Paul's like, no. You receive. What was handed down directly to you from eyewitnesses. And all of this in accordance with the scripture. In accordance with the scripture. You have seen and heard the content of the good news of Jesus. From those saying, I don't believe in a bodily resurrection. Paul essentially says, that's an ideology and not history. Paul confronts them with history. You explain all this history then. How did I and all these other faithful Jews find their way to you Gentiles? We didn't even like you guys. We're still struggling with it. Why are we here? Because we met Jesus, and he's real, and he's risen, and he's glorious. And and that good news fills our hearts, and we want you to know We want to share this good news because it's real and you're included. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that saves you. That's why the empty tomb is so important and the resurrection. It it speaks of many things to be sure but certainly one of them is it proves that the debt of sin has been paid in full. You see, If you are arrested for a crime and you spend time behind bars, how do you know that you've paid your debt to society? They let you out. You're no longer in jail. The wages of sin is death, for all die due to sin. How do I know the debt has been paid? Because Jesus is alive. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. He paid the debt in full, and he is free. He lives. He's not a dead Jesus. And and yes, you and I have to walk by faith. But we do so with a risen Jesus before us. Our hope is in him. It's not hope and hope, faith and faith. It's hope in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. He lives. I'm not right with God because of something I've done. I'm justified because of what Jesus has done. His righteousness is counted to me as if I had never sinned. Justification is a free gift of God's grace. Being raised from the dead on the last day is the continued fulfillment of that same gift. You do not make yourself spiritually alive. You don't because you're dead. Certainly, you will not will your dead body to come back again after you have died. No one has done so. Justification by grace and the resurrection of the dead are two sides of the same coin. And from chapter 13, love is what is to hold the church together. But love is not just our Christian duty. Love is our Christian destiny. It's where we're going. That's why the resurrection matters. Love is not just a duty, it's a destiny. A new community shaped and formed around Jesus' love for us. And Paul tells them and us that we must now live based on what Jesus has done in the past. True. But more than that. We also base how we live now on the future realities that are still to come. Their ethic, the problems that they were having in their church, all the little problems, in and out, Paul is pointing them ahead to a new time, a new community, that we live now as we wait for the full fulfillment then. I I know I've told you before the the story of the, the U.S. military chaplain, Henry Gehricke, who was chaplain to the Nazis at the Nuremberg trial. And at at the end of all of this, Ribbentrop, who was the Nazi uh, foreign minister, he was the first one called to the gallows. He was really disliked by everyone. Even the Nazis didn't like him. He was sleazy to the Nazis. That tells you something about who this guy was. And before he walked to the gallows, he told Gehricke, who had been ministering Christ to him, He said, I put all my trust in Christ. And as he's up there, an American officer, as he tied his feet and getting to put the hood over him, said, do you have any last words? And Riventrop responded, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned to Gerakim and he said, I'll see you again. That's hard to fathom. God how do you slay save really, really sleazy people like that? You know what's also hard to fathom is that there were some survivors of the Holocaust who went on to forgive their tormentors. How are both of those things possible because of the truth of Jesus Christ? Because it's real, it's not a mythology, It's not a metaphor. The good news has power to save because it's God's power to save. It's real. It's why we're here today. The gospel is good news because it's true. And the truth tells us all that God will restore this fallen creation, that all things will be renewed. And yes, we wait and we wait with patience. But how do I know this? Because Jesus... Who died for our sins, who was buried, has been raised again, and he has appeared to many, including you and I. Pray with me. Father, as we come before you, we are so grateful for the power of your good news. Father, for the power of your Holy Spirit that he brings us new life in Jesus. And Lord God, I would pray and ask that you would continue to reveal to us the fullness of all that that means. And and Father, if there are any here who do not know the saving work of Jesus, we would ask that you would open blind eyes to see, that you would breathe new life into that which is dead. Father, that the good news of Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, would restore life, even as we wait for the future promise of life after death in you. And this we would ask and pray through Jesus, our mighty risen King.